Hello and welcome to another episode of Virtual Legality. I'm your host, Richard Hogue, managing member of the Hogue Law Business Law Firm of Northville, Michigan. And today I want to offer an apology. Uh, I did what I thought was a pretty darn good video yesterday about IGN and putting up some headlines uh, that I thought were disingenuous at best with respect to what Tim Sweeney, the CEO of Epic Games, had to say at the DICE Summit in respect of politics and its role in video games. Uh, And unfortunately, though I thought that was a good video, I still think it's a good video, I wound up sounding like an alien robot. Uh, And I do apologize. I saw it in my comments. I I saw a number of people say, hey, this looked interesting to me, but I just couldn't watch it. I don't blame them one bit. So this morning, I, I got up, I looked at some toggles, I watched some tutorials, I read some support pages, tried to figure out exactly what the buttons were that I should press in order to limit my echo on these live streams, because if I can get these live streams working, hopefully you can get even more content out of virtual legality, because this is a quicker process for me to really work through and get out to you all uh, with my thoughts on business and law and video games and pop culture. But if I can't get it working, then we have to go through the normal editing process, and that's fine. But I want to at least test it, see if we can get it to go without that echo, see if we can get these really good conversations that I think we're having, both in chat and also in the comments to these videos. Uh, So if you're with me, if you're in chat, if you're watching this live, please do let me know if there's any issues with the audio stream, uh, if I am echoing, if there is anything else that you hear that is potentially problematic, because I would love to fix that up. Now, with that as kind of the the opening to our virtual legality today, I do have some fun stuff to talk about. This is a virtual legality video proper, and mostly what this is going to be about is about messaging. And a lot of the times in virtual legality, we talk about corporate messaging, right? We talk about messaging from companies and things that are vetted very specifically by lawyers. And what we're going to talk about today is not that. These are not comments. These are not uh, responses or messages from people that appear to have had their comments vetted by lawyers or accountants or PR or anybody else. Uh, Now, that could be wrong. Uh, Some of these are very carefully worded, uh, but that doesn't sound to me like they worked with lawyers or anybody in particular on these kinds of things. So if you're not familiar with this, I pulled up on your screen the Twitter thread from Mr. Jeff Keighley, who is in some respects, the MC of the video game industry, right? For the longest time, he has done things like the Video Game Awards. He once was uh, the head of uh, Easy Allies when they were game trailers. He did uh, a lot of the stuff, like the Final Hours documentaries that you might have enjoyed if you really like video games. Uh, But he also was responsible for something for the last couple of years in general called the E3 Coliseum, where he worked with the ESA and did work at E3 with those folks to put together a program to ask questions of and otherwise interview game developers. He worked with YouTube Gaming to do interviews all around E3 in early June in Los Angeles. And he is somewhat of an ambassador for the industry because of those various roles that he had. So it was very interesting earlier this week when he released the following statement. A statement from Jeff Keighley on E3. For the past 25 years, I have attended every Electronic Entertainment Expo. Covering, hosting, and sharing E3 has always been a highlight of my year, not to mention a defining part of my career. I've debated what to say about E3 2020. While I want to support the developers who will showcase their work, I also need to be open and honest with you, the fans, about precisely what to expect from me. Now, let's take a pause there because one of the things you will notice is that 
Jeff goes a little bit down the road of explaining what he is thinking here. And there are other interviews and other sites that he gave, I think by email, and where he's also pretty cautious about what he says specifically. But what he wants to be open and honest with folks about as a result of this statement is not precisely what happened, why he's taking this action, but precisely about what to expect from him. So I saw a number of people in my Twitter timeline or in my social media say, hey, he said he wanted to be open and honest, but he never actually said what this was all about. And that's true to an extent, but it's always important to read the sentences very carefully. He wants to be open and honest with the fact that he's not going to be at E3. He's not going to be making the E3 Coliseum. He's not going to be doing those kinds of things for E3. So he wanted people to be aware of that, but to not kind of air dirty laundry, which I suspect is part of this story, just based on some of the things we're about to talk about, to not make anybody feel bad, to not throw people under the bus, whatever idiom you would prefer to say, hey, I am upset with the ESA or with Publisher X. Jeff Keighley is an ambassador. He's a diplomat. He's been down this road, you see, for 25 years. This is what he does, and he's very smart in the way he does it. You can't hold something like the Game Awards that has, you know, all the CEOs of the various video game companies present an award together to appear on stage together if you don't have that somewhat neutral, very political, very diplomatic stance. And Jeff Keighley, to his credit, is very good at that. Doesn't mean this was vetted. This is using human language. This isn't using legalese or PR speak. So I don't think this was vetted to within an inch of its life, but I do think it's very specific in what it says and what it doesn't say. Here's what he says. I have made the difficult decision to decline to produce E3 Coliseum. For the first time in 25 years, I will not be participating in E3 in an, in an official capacity. I think it's a little bit unclear, and he's gone to clarify that he doesn't precisely know exactly what's going to happen with things around E3, if he's in Los Angeles, what he's going to be doing in respect of the, the things that go on around E3. But he's not going to be an official capacity individual for E3, for the ESA in that role that he has been in the past couple years and as kind of that ambassador of games at this official event, the largest trade show related to video games this specific year. He's not going to be doing that. He's not going to be there. I look forward to supporting the industry in other ways at other events in the future. You say, Rick, you made a video about this. He doesn't actually say much of anything there. And that's true. But that's when we can read between the lines. That the name of this video is talking about when you can read between the lines and when you can't. Because the second part of this video I want to talk about is a situation where uh, Mr. Drew Capuchon, I'm going to pronounce that terribly, I always have. He's an author that I've enjoyed. He's uh, He's had work that I've enjoyed very much. I've never been able to pronounce his name correctly. So I apologize for that in advance. If you find yourself watching this, Drew, uh, that's my bad and I apologize for it. But in those statements that he makes, he makes a few about Bioware and the Bioware that he started at and how it's different from the Bioware that he left. And a lot of people have read into it. There's been a lot of articles about what that statement said. I think it's inappropriate to read between the lines in respect of that statement. And I'm going to talk about why as a part of this video. Here, with what Jeff Keighley is saying, I think he's inviting us to really read between the lines to look at what he is about and why he, as the ambassador of video games, might otherwise be inclined to leave this role that he has had in respect of what should be the biggest show in the industry. Now, This is part of a longer story, so I want to walk through it with you a little bit, as we've done a lot of videos in virtual legality about it. So 
In the summer of last year, in August to be precise, a story started going around about how the ESA, the Entertainment Software Association, the trade group that is behind E3, that is made up of all these publishers, that is supposed to represent video games and video game industry in general, wound up making a lot of the personal information, including home addresses and things, of the people that were attending the E3 Expo public. And they did this by having essentially these large tables and, and charts available on their website that weren't privacy locked and that you could just go in and get. And the the having of a kind of brochure to establish who is at a trade event isn't that unusual. I go to a lot of them. I went to one this week where essentially you go and you go to a mixer and you go and you meet people and there is made available to you as a part of this trade association, a listing of who was there, how to contact them. So you might be able to set up lunches uh, and otherwise have that meaningful interaction that you maybe can't have over a cocktail for 10 minutes uh, at a standing table. That's not that unusual. What's unusual is kind of the security around it and how it was available online and anybody could go grab it. And then it was a story and then it made its way around the internet and all these various things. And so in August of last year, after last year's E3, the ESA was already under a bit of trouble because this was happening, this was released. And they didn't really ever go so far as to make a formal apology that this happened. And so I think a number of people were a little bit upset about that. A number of people certainly didn't trust the Entertainment Software Association with the information that they are once again going to be collecting for attending E3 in 2020. But I don't really think that's what's driving Jeff Keighley's decision here. Instead, I think it's more related to this second video that I did the next month. And excuse me for a second as I take a drink. We'll see if you can clip that out. Uh, you know, sometimes live is a little bit different than edited, so I apologize for that. But this video was called E3 Succumbs to the Age of the Influencer, What You Need to Know. And that title is really about the fact that the ESA once again had a security breach once again had a lot of its information revealed online, and this was in an article by Game Daily Biz where they found these slides that related to what the ESA was planning for 2020. And if I had to guess, this is one of the reasons why you see the Jeff Keeleys of the world, the Sonys of the world in part, dropping out of E3 2020 specifically. There's been a lot of talk online about whether E3 is dead, whether it won't be the same ever again, I don't know that that's the case, although I would point out to those people that E3 has had many transformations, that it was in warehouses by the airport, that it wasn't always this kind of shiny Las Vegas for video games type feeling thing. And so it will look different in five years and it will look different again in 10 years. Doesn't mean it's dead. Does mean that they're going to have to try some things because we do live in a world where Nintendo can get out whatever message it wants through a direct where Sony can get out whatever message it wants through a state of play, where presumably Microsoft is going to have a video series at some point and probably going to have those little videos go from right to left and look exactly like a Nintendo Direct at the end of the day in any event. So ESA and E3 is looking to be different because they find themselves as essentially a dinosaur, a trade show that maybe doesn't need to be a trade show with stage costs that maybe don't need to be stage costs for these companies and trying to convince its membership and the groups that are involved with the ESA, that it makes sense to invest in these kinds of things. So this PowerPoint presentation, which you can go, you can see that earlier video that I did where I walked through it a little bit more. I don't want to bore you with essentially a second walkthrough here, but I did want to remind people of what this said. This PowerPoint presentation describes an E3 that is fundamentally at odds in some ways with E3 as it has been before. 
So you see here the slide that I've got right up on your screen. E3 was a business to business retail event, right? It was to show retailers what games were going to be coming out so that they would know what to purchase, what had the hype that they could try them out, those kinds of things. But it is no longer. We listened, heard, and evolved. Here's their vision. E3 will be a fan, media, and influencer festival. It will mark both the beginning of the news and announcement cycle for the year and be a convening point for the biggest fans, top video game companies, leading news outlets and analysts, and social media influencer celebrities and athletes. Now, influencer festival and social media influencers, celebrities, and athletes, I think is where people are getting a little bit caught up because that hasn't traditionally been what E3 is about. And so the ESA has to pitch this thing to people, right? Has to convince its membership that they're going to pivot, as you see here, to an event focused on core gamers, online influencers, celebrities, and media with an emphasis on game pavilions, programming, and branded curated experiences centered on a theme. Now that's all gobbledygook, right? We can't actually read that PowerPoint and say, we know exactly what that means. But as the months have moved on, as we arrive in February of 2020, the ESA would have had to have made more specific plans. And those are starting to come to fruition. And I think what you've got, when you've got Jeff Keighley saying, I don't know that I want to do E3 2020 this year, when you've got him making a tweet that says, if you have any questions, I'm happy to answer here on social. What fueled your decision to not participate? And he says a ton of factors. I just don't really feel comfortable participating. Given what I know about the show as of today, I don't really feel comfortable participating has a lot of connotation, right? That's not even, I don't know about their vision. I don't know if this is the right move. This is, I don't feel comfortable. This is, the ESA is asking us to do something that doesn't necessarily match up with what I do. Whether that's selling something in these pavilions that Jeff Keighley doesn't feel comfortable with, whether it's interacting with celebrities and influencers in a way that he doesn't feel comfortable with, whatever the ESA has shared with him as of right now, he doesn't feel comfortable with. And that's really a large part of the story to me. And we saw this mirrored. Right? We saw this kind of language, this kind of concept earlier in the year. We saw it with Sony. This is only from last month. I said dropping out, Sony, the ESA, and two competing visions for E3. But you can see in the language that Sony decided to use, this is a quote they gave to Game Industry Biz. They say, we will build upon our global event strategy. Our focus is on making sure fans feel a part of the PlayStation family. We have great respect for the ESA as an organization but we do not feel the vision of E3 2020 is the right venue for what we are focused on this year. And I mentioned this in the video that I made in January, but note that this statement doesn't say we just don't feel E3 is right. We want to do our own thing. We love state of play. It says we don't feel the vision is right. That's as close as Sony can possibly come to saying the ESA is wrong. They're moving in a direction we don't like. And so we are not going to participate in E3 anymore. That is very similar in my eyes to I just don't really feel comfortable participating. And who can blame them? If you recall, what the ESA wound up saying about Sony's announcement that they were dropping out was all corporate speak gobbledygook. E3 is a signature event celebrating the video game industry and showcasing the people, brands, and innovations, redefining entertainment loved by billions of people around the world. 
E3 2020 will be an exciting high-energy show featuring new experiences, partners, exhibitor spaces, activations, and programming that will entertain new and veteran attendees alike. Exhibitor interest in our new activations is gaining the attention of brands that view E3 as a key opportunity to connect with video game fans worldwide. And if you watched the previous video in Virtual Legality, you know, one of the things that I said about that last sentence when I was finally able to, I think, partially decode it from whatever kind of boardroom PR speak this was actually issued under is that that last sentence is a bit of a side jab at Sony. Interest in our activations is gaining the attention of brands that view E3 as a key opportunity to connect with video game fans. Sony must not view it as a key opportunity. The people that care about the fans, they are in on E3. And so you see already this kind of side sniping. You see this kind of corporate speak aimed at each other in a way that we're not used to seeing, honestly. A lot of the times, the, the fans bring kind of the console wars, bring kind of that snippiness between entities and corporations. But when we talk about actual corporate communications, that's not usually the case. Corporations usually are pretty milk toast, and they say, oh yes, we are very happy that Microsoft and Xbox are successful, good for the video game industry, but please buy our Sony PlayStation 4. Even though a lot of fans would like to see them snipe at each other a little bit, they don't usually do that, with some notable exceptions, right? Sony saying, here's how you trade games on the PlayStation 4, that was sniping. That was a direct subtweet type-esque video back in 2013 aimed at Microsoft. But we take note of those things because they are so unusual. And so when a Jeff Keighley, who has otherwise been absolutely amicable to every player in the industry, willing to, you know, sell Doritos and Mountain Dew, willing to brand his actual uh, awards show in order to make sure that it can happen, who understands the function of a marketplace with the selling of video games, when he says, I'm not comfortable... Every single person in the video gaming industry should sit back and take notice. And that's not intended to disparage Jeff Keighley. He's a guy that knows how business is done. He's a guy that knows how to fund these things. He understands the issues that somebody like the ESA faces in getting a trade show up and running because he does it every year with the Game Awards and sometimes to an effect where we don't like it, right? Who can forget the giant chick robot that was giving fist bumps to Kyle Bossman in the aisle? Different things are tried. And Mr. Jeff Keighley now sits back and says... Whatever it is that the ESA is doing, I am uncomfortable with. That is something that should cause people to take notice, should cause people to pause. And in my honest estimation, even the video game websites and journalists that are reporting on this aren't probably giving it enough weight. What the ESA is going to reveal as what the new E3 actually looks like is going to be something more significantly different than I think even we are anticipating. Because, yes, Sony wasn't involved last year, and E3 was mostly the same. Sony saying we don't agree with the vision is different than that. I'm not sure whether Sony had settled on not coming back to E3 before this year. I do know that I think that the ESA basically solidified that stance. That whatever it is that they are doing, Sony isn't happy with. And that now that Jeff Keighley isn't happy with it, I think we really do need to take, take note of these kinds of things. Sony may be expected. Jeff Keighley's a bit of the canary in the coal mine, right? This is a guy that sells product. This is a guy that helps the industry on a kind of neutral basis. And he says he's not comfortable. And if you go and you look through his Twitter thread, he actually responded to a number of people. You see some people say, oh, it was the money, all these various things. He said they never even got to talking about money. That whatever the ESA showed him about what the new E3 would look like, he probably just wasn't interested flat out in the Coliseum. And so he backed out of those conversations, period. And so you see now that what we should be reflecting on 
is this PowerPoint presentation from September. I highly recommend checking out this video. E3 succumbs to the age of the influencer because it looks like they didn't back off any of this. Uh, And if they did, it was not enough to bring folks like Sony, bring folks like Jeff Keighley into the fold. And it wouldn't surprise me that even those folks, those publishers like Nintendo and Microsoft that are committed right now to E3, if they don't use this as an evaluation of whether this is what the show should look like. Now, don't get me wrong. Sony and Microsoft have different mission statements, have different plans, have different abilities to go get revenue out of the video game industry. One might just love the new E3 while one doesn't like it. But it is something worth noting. It is something worth watching because it looks like E3 is going to have a transformational shift. Whether that's the end of all things or whether that's the brand new E3 and we're going to be actually liking this and enjoying it for the next 20 years, I couldn't tell you. I know I have my concerns about the thing, but overall, we need to pay attention to these kinds of things. And I don't think it is overselling it when somebody like Jeff Keighley says, I don't really feel comfortable. These are the kinds of things that you can read into these statements, I think, that are warranted to read into these statements. And so I don't think E3 is going to look the same this year or in the next five years. I don't know that that necessarily means it's dead. However, if it really transforms into something that core gamers and people like me that are hobbyists that really have enjoyed that first week of June really like to see as news and have it come out of that kind of uh, Los Angeles expo period that it changes in a way that we don't like, it wouldn't surprise me if E3 winds up being quote unquote dead to us rather than dead overall. So it's something to keep in mind, something to watch. I do think this is a canary in a coal mine and I don't think it's overselling it to say I would expect E3 to look pretty significantly different because if someone like Jeff Keighley is uncomfortable with what is being asked of him, that means that there are a lot of people that are going to be even more uncomfortable that don't sell Doritos and Xbox and all these things like Robo Chic and are going to be even more uncomfortable than somebody like Keeley. Now, with the second story that I wanted to talk about, and we'll see if we can bring it up and not be just a gray box, uh, this PC Gamer article talks about a comment that I think is being overly read into, right? So I wanted to take this kind of when to read between the lines and when not to read between the lines as a, a dual kind of question. So this says Mass Effect writer Drew Karpishin says he left Bioware because it became too corporate. Now, first of all, I know I'm critical of headlines a lot. I know I was critical of headlines a lot yesterday, and I appreciate some of the commenters now saying there is an echo. I really appreciate it. I really did focus on hitting a lot of buttons and and toggling a lot of toggles to try to make it less echoey today. So I appreciate people letting me know that it does sound better. I am really very apologetic for how it sounded yesterday. I, I listened to it and I said, oh my goodness, I can barely listen to that. And I really did like what we did yesterday in, in that video. So that's that's unfortunate. Uh, I'm also recording an archival version of this. So hopefully we can get around these things in a number of different ways. Uh, but this particular article says, uh, longtime Bioware designer James Olin left the studio in July 2018 after 22 years and credits on games ranging from Baldur's Gate to Anthem. His departure came shortly after that of writer Drew Karpishin, who'd been with Bioware for nearly as long. His first credit is as a writer and editor on the Baldur's Gate 2 manual, and who left for a second time a few months earlier. Now they're back together again at Olin's new studio, Archetype Entertainment. And we're going to look at all these statements. We're going to look at this blog. But overall, it's important just for me, in terms of headlines, to note that he never uses the word too corporate. And and that's kind of important when we look at what should be read into and what shouldn't. So let's look at his actual statement, because we love to look at the source material here in virtual legality. This is from Drew Karpishin's blog. It says, Archetype Entertainment, which if you're not familiar with it, and I really wasn't, 
is apparently a new video game focused subsidiary run by Wizards of the Coast, uh, which is a major board and card gaming company, uh, Magic the Gathering. They have a lot of uh, representation in various places of toys uh, and, and board games and, and card games. And so they're, they're building up a new kind of RPG focused video game company. And it could be cool. But he says, wow, it's been a long time since I updated this page. The past couple of years have been busy for me. I worked on a number of different projects, some like the Odyssey of the Dragon Lords RPG campaign, were wildly successful. Other projects, like my work as a writer for the interactive narrative mobile app Storyscape, didn't pan out. Yeah, that app just got uh, announced to be closing. Unfortunately, Storyscape was canceled after only a year. I was lucky enough to have my series, Edge of Extinction, get published before the app went dark, but it sucks knowing it's gone now. A lot of talented people were involved in my project and the other Storyscape titles, and I thought we had something with real potential. But sometimes, the video game industry is a harsh and unforgiving environment. Hey, maybe that's what inspired me to write Edge of Extinction. If you want to get a sense of what we were doing and how it resonated with fans, you can check out the Reddit, but it might make you long for what was lost. Fortunately for me, I have another gig now. I'm proud to announce that I'm the lead writer for Archetype Entertainment. Founded by James Olin, the creative genius behind Bioware hits like Baldur's Gate, KOTOR, and Dragon Age, Archetype is a new video game studio under the Wizards of the Coast umbrella. And I haven't been this excited to work on a project in a long, long time. Side note, I've always enjoyed working with Wizards of the Coast. They even published my first novel. Now, nothing terribly exciting yet, right? It's, it's good to know Mr. Karpashin is moving to a new place. Archetype sounds like it's setting up to be a kind of new, new look Bioware. But here's where he gets in trouble. And here's where the headlines were and all the stuff that I saw over the past couple days. I have been working in the video game industry for 20 years now. When I started at Bioware, everything was fresh and exciting. It was a dream job. Talented people working together to create epic games like Baldur's Gate, KOTOR, Mass Effect, and Dragon Age. But as we grew and became more successful, things changed. We became more corporate. Note that's not too corporate, that's more corporate. And that's a distinction I think that's important, but we'll get back to it. We were less able to make what we loved, and the teams were pushed to create games based on market research rather than our creative instincts and passions. My dream job became just a job, and I lost the enthusiasm and excitement I once had. But with Archetype, my passion has been rekindled. The feel in the studio reminds me of my early days at Bioware. I can feel the magic in the air. And even though I can't get too deep into the specifics of what we're working on yet, we are already generating plenty of excitement in the industry. I know we have big shoes to fill. With Bioware, I was part of a legacy that will endure forever. We created some of the most beloved CRPGs of the past two decades, but I truly believe at Archetype we have the talent and the opportunity to do something just as amazing. This journey is only beginning, and I know it will be long and challenging, but for the first time in a long time, I can't wait to travel down this path again. So what is Mr. Karpashin describing here? right? He's describing a certain amount of burnout, or at least a change in the cultural environment of his previous employer. No, he hasn't actually worked at Bioware in a couple of years. And we're going to get to his statement about his original leaving of Bioware that I also think shed some light on this. But that at some point, Bioware became something different than when he started. And I don't think that that is news, right? I don't think that that's actually something that is different from what most of us experience, especially if we work in the startup space. 
Right, if you're not familiar with virtual legality, if you're finding yourself here for the first time because you just absolutely love photos of Jeff Keighley and you're already putting some kind of uh, Photoshop version of a Doritos uh, Pope hat on him, more power to you. But if you aren't familiar with me, I'm a corporate lawyer. I focus on entrepreneurial endeavors, getting companies formed and funded. And I work with a lot of people that are creative, that are brilliant, that are smart, and that maybe don't necessarily... Uh, understand exactly how a capitalization table works or how that NDA works or that vendor contract. That's what I do. That's hopefully who I help every day. But as part of that, one of the things that I've noted and one of the things I think a lot of people who have studied it have noted is that the startup space is very exhausting, yes, but also exciting, right? You're putting your heart, your blood, your sweat and your tears into this baby that you hope will grow. And oftentimes I'm talking about tech. I have some video game clients in my book of business, but I'm also talking about general hard software, business software, pharmaceuticals, life sciences, other technology companies that I work with on a regular basis. And it doesn't matter what the output of that is. Those founders, those people that work for a startup, those startup CEOs, you know, they sleep at the office. They put all their time and money and energy into it. And it's a, it's a weird life, right? You're often mortgaging your house. You're betting it all on yourself. And that can be very exciting. The startup space is often tumultuous. And that kind of tumult helps get you up in the morning, helps you get excited to face the day. At some point, your company finds success, hopefully. You know, not all companies, maybe not even most companies. But at some point, if your company finds success, it's going to fundamentally change. Prototyping your product world building in the case of something like Mr. Carpishan and Bioware and getting the Bible in place for writing in that universe is going to be fundamentally different feeling than getting all of the factory lines up and running once your product is made and commercializing it and getting the logistics pipelines up and running and then selling to potential customers or hospitals or universities or whatever it is that you're selling your product to. Going and having those conversations is a different job. And one of the things in my line of work that you see very often is that the CEO that bootstraps you, that gets that early funding, that works with the idea guys and gets things past the commercialization stage, those are very, very, very often not the CEO that runs the mature industry, that runs the mature company, that negotiates with the Chinese factory, that works with the potential customers at the university, that does all these various things, that there's a CEO that's very good from a level of zero people to 50 people, and then a CEO that's good from 50 to 1,000, and then the guy that does it for 1,000 plus, that those are different roles, those are different functions, and sometimes that's because the startup CEO loves the energy, loves the excitement, of starting something from nothing, of building something up him or herself. And it sounds to me like Mr. Carpishan is that kind of person. And I can I can absolutely sympathize. I'm that kind of person. You know, I was a equity partner at a big law firm. I went to start my own thing because I wanted to do that. I wanted to work more with those entrepreneurs that were also doing that. And I can absolutely kind of jive with the notion of that office that I helped start in Ann Arbor, Michigan. When it was two people, that was a very different energy than when it was 50, right? And yes, that is quote unquote more corporate. That's more market research. That's more things to consider. That doesn't make it wrong. That makes it not right for Mr. Carpishan. And so when you've got something like PC Gamer talking about, oh, it's too corporate, leading into reset era threads about the corporatization of Bioware, calling Mr. Carpishan as being overly negative or disparaging of, her, of his previous employer from the Bioware people 
feeling bad about what was said in this blog post. I don't blame the people that are still at BioWare for complaining about something like this. Oftentimes, if I were asked by someone if they should go out with a statement like this, I would say, hey, maybe we can we can tweak this a little bit so it can't be read as negatively by your former employer. But I ultimately don't think that's necessarily what he was saying. Yes, with a little bit more twist, a little bit more caution, you could say something along the lines of, it just wasn't right for me. It turned into something that was different from what I loved and maybe not be as technically offensive to your prior employer like BioWare. But I think ultimately when he says we became more corporate, as more money comes in, as more money is bet on your product, as it becomes more and more expensive to create, yeah, of course there are more checks and balances. Yeah, of course there are more discussions to be had and more rooms and you come and you get owned by a publisher like Electronic Arts. There's more and more people. And that conference call that used to be the three of you is now the 30 of you. And that maybe isn't as fun for the guy that sits there and creates these worlds. I have no doubt in my mind that that's the case. Doesn't mean it's wrong. Doesn't mean it's unexpected does mean that Mr. Karpashen appears to be motivated by wanting to go out there and build something new. And as best I can tell, that's exactly what Archetype is, right? Built from the ground up, doing its first game, and ultimately populating itself with some of those people that were there early at BioWare, that probably share some of that DNA, that loved that buildup, maybe more than running or coasting or however you want to characterize that more corporate environment. Yes, we often see this from startup founders. No, it's not that unusual. And if we go back and we look at what Mr. Carpishan said in 2018 when he left the second time, everyone who works at BioWare pours their heart and soul into the games they are making. It's creatively demanding and at times exhausting. In the past, I've managed to juggle outside projects with my work at BioWare, but it always took a toll. So there you have it. Please don't email me asking for more information about why I'm leaving. There is no dirty laundry. I'm just waiting to air. The tone of Bioware, the operation of the thing changed, as of course it would because it became one of the leading lights in what was quickly becoming one of the most lucrative industries on earth. And Mr. Carpishan looked around and found that he preferred to freelance. That's no surprise, right? He spent these giant kind of periods of time working on all sorts of different things, being involved in various Kickstarters, helping various novels, working on things like the app that he talked about in the archetype announcement blog post. He likes to get his hands wet doing different things. And so it makes sense for me as a startup lawyer to look at this and say, yeah, that's not the worst thing in the world to say. That's not him really saying that Bioware became too corporate on the whole, that it became something that was toxic to everybody. It's something very individual and personal. And I think a lot of these places, and PC Gamer I've pulled out here because it was, I think, first on the Google search list. They're not unusual or alone in this. This was covered in a lot of different places. Mr. Karpishan saying that he's leaving because the tone no longer fit what he wanted to do doesn't make Bioware currently awful. Now, obviously, we talked just this past week about Anthem being burned down and being built back up in 2.0 and the issues that Bioware has had with Mass Effect Andromeda, with messaging around Anthem. And they obviously are going to continue to be a factor in virtual legality. We're going to talk about the issues that they have in trying to build Anthem back up and work with EA as a publisher. This doesn't make those go away, but it does mean that you can read too much into these things. 
there is a distinction between what Mr. Karpishan says here and what Mr. Keeley says here. And I think ultimately it's worthwhile to go through the critical thinking exercise and figure out exactly what makes sense to read between the lines on and what doesn't make sense. And hey, maybe I'm guilty of that a little bit here in virtual legality. We like to parse very closely because I'm a lawyer and that's what I get paid to do for the most part. Sometimes you can do that too much. And I try to remind myself that you have to read these things in the full context that they were intended. And in the case of Mr. Drew Karpishan, I think the best way to think about it is that this is his individual notion. And yes, there's a little bit of always self-promoting, right? One of the things that we see when you think about products is you think about the fact that that last one that maybe you liked, it's not as good as this new one we're going to sell you, right? When you think of a Ubisoft press conference and how they talk about the new watchdogs or the new Assassin's Creed, it's always about the things that they couldn't do in the last one. Oh, we wanted to do X, Y, and Z, but only now, only now has our vision come to its true fruition. That's a little bit about what Drew is doing here, right? Hey, that Bioware stint I did through 2018, it was never right. This new thing is right. And you should be excited about it because I'm going to promote this new endeavor. All these people are involved in it. I could never quite get to the place I wanted to get to in that previous stint at Bioware. And now I can get excited, get hyped. So I think that's ultimately at the end of the day what I wanted to talk about with you all in virtual legality. If you like this, please like, please subscribe. We're still on the hunt for more subscribers. We are very pleased with our growth. Uh, but the more people that we can have talk about these things, that we can comment on in these videos, I, and I can have discussions with, I think the better and better and better it will become. So please tell your friends, share it around on any kind of uh, message boards or Reddit threads that you think might be interested in this kind of thing. If you caught it on YouTube, thank you so much for watching. And if you listen to it in its podcast form, thank you so much for listening. As best I can tell from the comments, there don't appear to be major issues with the echoing on this version. So hopefully, maybe we solved that problem. I still have to do a few more test cases where there are a few more downstream downloaders here uh, at, uh, at Hogue House. But until that time, until we can check that, I'm very happy to hear it sounding better. And I will catch you on the very next episode of Virtual Legality. Virtual Legality is a YouTube video series with audio podcast versions presented as commentary and for education and entertainment purposes only. It does not constitute legal advice and does not create an attorney-client relationship. If you have legal questions about the topics discussed, please consult your own legal counsel.